so good to see you today. Hey, in a time where a lot of the world is thinking about getting, our church is thinking about giving. One of the things that we prioritize is the, the gospel. It's the thing. It's the sum, the seat, and the center of everything that we do at Coastway. It's the good news of Jesus going as far as possible to as many people as possible. And a big way that happens is through generosity. And a way to think about what happens when you actually start to follow Jesus is, uh, maybe you've seen a Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, go back to Ebenezer Scrooge, before he encounters the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. What is he like? Well, he's very greedy. He's very angry. He's very stingy. Uh, but after he has this life-altering encounter with these three ghosts, it's as if he's changed and transformed from the inside out. And so he goes from being a greedy person to a generous person. He goes from being a really stingy person to somebody who's, who's a giver. And that's what happens whenever we follow Jesus fully, is he begins to change us from the inside out so that we worship with our wallets. And so here's a way to think about it. A question we're ask, asking as a church during the Christmas season especially, is how can we open our wallets wider than ever to take the gospel further faster? And I just want to give you two ways, man, if you're, uh, if you're just interested in just knowing, like, what does that actually look like? Uh, I, want to, I want to give you two ways. Number one, we as a church, uh, we're a new church, we're, <laughs> we're a young church, we're an excited church, but we strive to be a generous church. And one of the ways that, that we could do that, that you could do that, is by giving to our year-end overflow offering. And let me tell you what Overflow is, is all about. It's all about us blessing our strategic mission partners who we have locked arms with outside of the 843. And 100% of every dollar that's given to the Overflow offering is going to be given directly to our strategic mission partners. And so there's local, that's, that's basically our Serve 843 initiative. That's going to go to bless our partners here at Blackwater Middle School. It's going to go to bless uh, the, the Good News Club that we leave at, lead at Carolina Forest Elementary School on Wednesdays where we go in and we just get to hang out with students and some other uh, areas of need in our city. Uh, but then there's also Harbor City Church, Pastor Jonathan Linker in Charleston, South Carolina. And then there's Grace City Church in Santo Domingo, D Dominican Republic. And I was on the phone with Pastor Manuel, who he's the pastor at Grace City, and he told me a story that I just think really put in perspective uh, the value of generosity and partnering with church plants beyond just what we see here in the 843. And uh, there's a single mom named Margaret. And let me tell you a little bit about how Margaret got connected to Grace City Church. It was actually through a team that Coastway Church sent this past summer. And one of our team members knocked on Margaret's door. She's a single mom with three kids. Uh, and she is not was not connected to a local church, is not a Christian uh, knocked on her door, door, invited her to Grace City, and here's what I want to tell you. Because of the influence of our church, not just giving but also going, she's been going to Grace City every Sunday since. And not only that, but she, she has not made a profession of faith in Jesus yet, but she's, she's brought her three children and herself to church every week, and she is in a, uh, a place where she can hear, see, and respond to the gospel. And it's because you give, it's because you give to things like Overflow that we're able to go. Uh, and it's also because we go that we're able to give. It's just this this cool relationship. And so if you're interested in hearing a little bit more about this or just maybe even giving to Overflow, you can go to coastwaychurch.com slash give. We get to give, and that's the way that we think around Coastway Church. So uh, let's do this. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 18. We uh, This is week two of our Christmas series, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 
25 today. And let me just kind of set it up this way. When a baby is born, it changes everything, right? Sleeping, let's start with the obvious one. It's like sleeping. You get a lot less sleep. Uh, Spending, let's talk about spending. You spend a lot more money. Socializing, relationships look different. It's like, how do we get this tiny human home so that they can be uh, fed and in bed by like seven o'clock or whatever, whatever it is. One of the things that uh, Victoria and I we're still kind of we're st- we're still missing uh, since we we've got uh, two two young children. Uh, Eleanor, she's five. Elliot, he's about three months. And uh, one of the things that we did a lot before we had kids is we played this board game called Catan. I don't know if you've ever played Catan before, but it's a commitment, and it's a lot of fun, though. It's a lot of fun. But we would always play play that like uh, with friends, like late at night, because it's going to take like two hours. We no more Catan, to say the least. And then there's like spare time. You're just like, well, what is that? What, what is spare time? Whenever you have a tiny human that you're trying to keep alive, right? But today, I just want to tell you that we're we're going to talk about not just a birth, but the birth that changed everything. We're not just talking about a baby, we're talking about the baby who mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. We're talking about the baby who uh, was born to give us second birth, born to raise the sons of earth as we were singing earlier. And as we step into the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to try and experience this timeless event with fresh eyes. Because what does familiarity do? It breeds passivity. When you get familiar with something, you get kind of passive towards something. And this story that we're going to read today, it's, it's familiar, yes, but it's powerful. And, and the power is experienced as we look at it with fresh eyes. I mean, this, you know, you see, sing songs like Away in a Manger, it's that familiar. Uh, who's seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? Maybe you've already watched it. If not, that you are sent to go and watch Ch- Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, it's, it's fun. But this is like Linus standing on the stage in a Charlie Brown Christmas familiar or maybe you have a nativity set up in your house. Does anybody have a nativity uh, in their house? Or maybe in their neighborhood? Any, any neighbors got the, you know, Mary and Joseph? Uh, Eleanor calls him Jophus. So Mary and Jophus and, and baby Jesus and uh, the wise men, they actually didn't show up until later. So if you really want to be biblical, you put the wise men across the lawn because they, they showed up a little bit later. Uh, so, uh, but maybe you got a nativity set up. And I heard a story about a kid uh, one time, and uh, he was going to write a letter to Santa Claus and talk about, like, here's what I want for Christmas. And uh, his parents said, okay, instead of writing a letter to Santa Claus, because he'd, he'd been a bad little boy that year, uh, instead of writing a letter to Santa Claus, we want you to write a letter to Jesus. He's like, okay. And so he starts writing this letter to Jesus. Dear Jesus, I've been good for six months straight. Cross that out. Uh, I've been good for one month straight. Oh, cross that out. <laughs> I've been good for one week straight. Oh, cross that out. And then he looks at the nativity, and he goes and he gets Mary out of the nativity, and he writes... Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) Funny, right? Uh, One of the most important parts of welcoming a baby into your life is what you name him. And we'll see today, uh, what we're going to see today is how God's names meet our greatest needs. We're going to see two names for Jesus. And each name describes how he would go on to meet the greatest needs of mankind. And what are those great needs? It's twofold. It's we need to be rescued from sin. Did you know that every relational conflict that you have in your life right now is because of sin? Did you know that every internal conflict that you have in your life right now is because of sin? Sin is slavery. That's a way to think about it. It's an incurable disease. It's terminal. And we've we've got to have someone outside of us come and and cure us, and Jesus is the one. 
So we need to be rescued. But second of all, uh, we, we need to be reunited with God in relationship. That's the two greatest need, rescue and reunion. And that's what the entire Bible is about. So take a look with me at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And, and what I want to show you right here, we, we talked about this last week, but the, the Christmas story, um, this is not just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. This is actual human history. It's, it's not like once upon a time and a galaxy far, far away. No, this is actual human history. This really happened. Historical, verifiable events. And what was it? Well, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So already some very important details emerge. First, we meet Mary and Joseph. So we know from Luke's account how uh, both are from Nazareth in Galilee. And here's what you need to know about Nazareth. Nazareth was nothing. If I were to ask you, like, if there were one place in the state of South Carolina where Jesus would be born if he were to be born in South Carolina, you'd probably say maybe, maybe somewhere like Greenville, somewhere like Columbia, uh, or Spartanburg, Charleston, maybe even, maybe even Myrtle Beach. But no, uh, Jesus, he's born in Aner. <laughs> I was actually looking at uh, the smallest town in the state of South Carolina, and it's Smyrna, South Carolina, population 45. Jesus is born in Smyrna. You would think, man, he would be born in like a big, influential city, but no, here he comes to, to nothing Nazareth. Nazareth was simple. It was full of poor, illiterate peasants. There may have been 100 people who lived there, and we know this because the wells in Nazareth uh, could only hold water for about 100 people. And when, whenever some, of, some people started hearing that Jesus was coming from Nazareth, in John 146, uh, another gospel account, they say nothing good comes from Nazareth. So uh, that's Nazareth. That's where Mary and Joseph are from. This is where this is, this is all downloading. And then some background on Mary. Let me tell you about Mary. Well, first of all, um, she's not some fair-skinned fair white woman in her mid-30s adorned with a halo, despite what the pictures have portrayed over the years. Anybody raised teenage daughters before? Or maybe you will raise a teenage daughter. My, my hand is up. Okay, so think 13 to 18. More likely on the lower age of that, 13 to 18. Mary is a teenager. She likely owned one dress. She collected firewood for the house. She was poor. She was uneducated. She was a peasant. And she probably got a little stool from Joseph for Valentine's Day as her present. Something, something really practical. He was a carpenter. And I'll just say this. Catholics love you, if that's your, your uh, background. Um, Catholics um, you think too highly of Mary. And here's why I say that. Mary is not on level footing with Jesus. He's not, or she's not. Uh, and we know this because Mary said so. If you read Luke's account, what does Mary say? My God, my Savior. Mary needed to be saved. And then there's that, that account outside of the house whenever Jesus is like teaching, and uh, Mary and her brothers are like disrupting the teaching and saying that Jesus is embarrassing them. And Jesus literally rebukes Mary and <laughs> her brothers. And so uh, Mary, uh, uh, Catholics think too highly of Mary. Protestants think too lowly of Mary because she is a powerful example, a powerful example of godliness and unconditional surrender, as we will see in just a few moments. But next we meet Joseph. Joseph's 16 to 20 years old. He can't even rent a car or a camel yet. And <laughs> he, uh, he just started shaving. 
Um, and man, he's a, he's a carpenter. It's like, so to two teenagers and nothing Nazareth, here comes heaven. And Mary and Joseph are betrothed. We see, what, what do you need to know here? Uh, it's about as painful as it sounds. So basically what, what was going on with the betrothal is that the way that Jewish marriages happened, it was opposite of how our, our marriages happen in our, in our tradition. Instead of waiting through an engagement to get married, a couple would exchange vows first. Uh, they would become legally married, uh, and then they would go through a period of what we call, uh, what we would understand as an engagement. And during that time, they would not live together and they would not sleep together. That would happen at a later time when they would actually have a formal wedding ceremony where they would consummate the wedding uh, uh, and the union physically after which. And so, uh, Mary, what is she doing during the betrothal? She's um, planning uh, the wedding. That's what she's doing. Isn't that exciting? I need to plan the wedding. And then Joseph, what is, he, what is he doing? He's probably building a house for them to live in. It's just a modest, humble house. Uh, and he's cultivating his career so that he can provide. And uh, w- what is it that uh, is significant about them being betrothed? Well, it's because if you, if you break off a betrothal, that's the equivalent of a divorce. So at this point, there's no turning back. And Matthew tells us that before they came together, in verse 18, Mary was found to be with child. Okay, so the plot thickens. It's like, what, what, what's going to happen right here? Well, the obvious uh, observation is that Mary and Joseph, they have not slept together, and she's pregnant. So you read this and you wonder, what would it be like to find, be told that you're pregnant by God <laughs> Uh, from an angel that was sent from God in a small, rural, legalistic, conservative village. It would be humiliating. I mean, your, your, your reputation is, is going to be ruined. And, I mean, there's one of two assumptions. Either she slept with Joseph before she was supposed to, or she committed adultery. I mean, those are like the, the natural conclusions. And here's what you need to know. The, the, the law of Moses said that you could stone such a woman or stone such a man. And society was certainly going to shame both of them and so Joseph has an out because he didn't sleep with her, and he can just say, hey, she committed adultery, and I'm off the hook. But here's, here's what happens right here. And I can't, I can't overstate the significance of this story for us today. We are introduced to this unavoidable reality that when you welcome Jesus into your life, you are going to face ridicule. When you welcome Jesus into your life, you're going to deal with rejection. You know, it happened as soon as the angel announced this to, to Mary and Joseph, and it's going to happen. You know, when you, when you share that, that God has, has turned your life uh, inside out, that you've been transformed through trust in Jesus, when you tell your family, they're not going to get it. They're going to say, oh, you've been a Christian all your life. It's like, oh, that's the problem as you think that. <laughs> that's the problem. Nobody's a Christian their whole life. Uh, or maybe your uh, your friends from a former life or, or a former season are just going to think that you're you're crazy, man. They have a totally different value system, and you're going to have a really hard time relating to them, right? Or maybe it's people at work. Uh, they're they're just going to think that you're a few stops off the crazy train for following this Jesus guy. Or people at school, maybe your peers. Let's see what happens next. Verse nineteen. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So something that we learn about Joseph at this point is that he's a godly man. And even though he's confused, even though he feels betrayed, here's what he wants to do. He still wants to take care 
of Mary. He still cares about her reputation. And men, I just want to say Joseph is a great example for us. Because his example actually brings up some great questions. Number one, are we protecting the women in our life? Are we watching out for them? Are we standing between them and and danger, them and falsehood? But then another question is, men, are we doing the right thing? It says that Joseph was a just man. Are we doing the right thing? Joseph was, and we should too, but he's got some stuff to think about. I mean, just imagine, put yourself in the sandals of Joseph right here. This is really hard. Take a look at verse 20, and the first statement in verse 20, I really want us to latch on to because there's just uh, explosive significance right here. It says, but as he considered these things. All right, stop right there. So Joseph has a big decision to make. What does he do? He considers. How does a godly man consider? He prays. He goes to the word of God for a word from God. He seeks the Lord. And that's what Joseph was undeniably doing right here. And I just want to ask you, are there any big decisions that you're faced with at this point, at this season? Are there some relational decisions that you have to make? Uh, Are are there some uh, professional decisions that you have to make? You know, are the things related to your money, things related to school? Like Joseph, here's what I want to ask you. Are you slowing down to consider? Are you slowing down to seek the Lord and to hear from Him? Here's what we know from Psalm 119.105, that God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. So when we come to a crossroad, when we feel confused, when we feel overwhelmed, we find ourselves in a crisis, well, God's Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We go to the Word of God for a word from God. And here's something, it's not, it's not explicitly stated, but who knows how this would have ended up if Joseph, like most of us, would have just acted on impulse, just acted out of pure emotion and not stopped to slow down to consider. It was only when he did that, by the way, that he sought the Lord, that he heard clearly from the Lord, and the angel appeared. Look at the rest of verse 20. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so it's like, hey, Joseph, I know this is scary. I know this is confusing. But everything that Mary has told you is true. And I'm showing up to confirm that to you right now by the witness and word of God. And what does the angel say? Do not fear. Did you know that do not fear is the single most frequent and greatest command in all of Scripture? And it's been estimated that there's around 365 instances where we are told not to fear. That's one for every day of the week, right? Yeah, and what do we do every single day? We're afraid. But not not only is that the greatest command in Scripture, it also corresponds to the greatest promise in Scripture. And, and what is the greatest promise in Scripture? I am with you. It is God with us. And so... Uh, Pretty, <coughs> excuse me. Um, pretty much every time that you see, do not fear. You're going to say, "For I am with you." Uh, fear not, for I am with you. That's that is the that is the uh, command and the promise that we see all throughout Scripture. And so, why why is that important for Joseph? Well, he's a teenager. I mean, he still he cares what his peers think. It's like Joseph, you're going to be teased, but God is going to be pleased. 
It's like, Joseph, this is going to be the hardest thing you ever do. If you say yes to Christ, it's going to be the hardest thing that you ever do. But it's going to be worth it. It's, it's going to be the most worthwhile thing that you will ever do. Take a look at verse 21, and let's see how the story progresses. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the big idea today is that uh, Jesus' names meet our greatest needs. Now let me, sh- let me show this to you. What, what is it that we need? We need to be saved. We need to be rescued from our sins. And so here's what I I want you to see right here is that the name Jesus means God will meet our need for rescue. And let's just unpack this a little bit. Notice how the angel tells Joseph what to name the baby. Like if someone were to come to you and tell you what to name your baby, you'd be like, who do you think you are? God. That's that's about the only person who could like tell you what you're going to name a baby. It's a re- and this is a really big deal because to name something, what does it mean? Let's just say it out loud. That means you have authority over it. So God named Adam. Adam named the animals. Parents, you name your children. You probably name your pets. But no one gets to name God. Do you see that? God names God. God has a name. And God names God, and what is his name? Jesus, and what does that mean? Rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer. So this is significant because not only do God's names meet our greatest needs, they also confront the greatest lies. And what is the great lie that stands in opposition to staying, saving faith? Here it is. I can rescue myself. I don't need to be rescued. You see, every other religion teaches some version of this. Climb the ladder up to God through your good works. And it doesn't just show up in religion. It also shows up in school. It shows up in sports. It shows up in in work. Is you perform and other people will be pleased. And and you you will be worthy if you you perform. There was a... um, my doors were blown off when I saw this. There's like this uh, network, like you can watch like local advertisements for Myrtle Beach and like there's all these restaurants and businesses and like, I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of interesting like seeing what all's out there. And there was a seafood restaurant that, that ran a commercial and their sales pitch was this. Our crab legs are so good, they go to heaven. So, so let me get this straight. All right, I'm not going to tell you where it was. Let me get this straight. If you're good, you go to heaven, even if you're crab legs. What is wrong with us, man? This is why you need a Bible-teaching, mission-minded, Jesus-loving local church, because crazy stuff like that's out there. Um, think about it like this. It, man, isn't, isn't Christmas just a funny time? I mean, what do we do? We, we take lights from the inside, and we put them on the outside. We take trees from the outside, we put it on the inside. We take our socks and hang it over the fireplace. Strange, man. We get into it. But I want to show you, this is the Woods family Christmas tree. Beautiful, right? Uh, And it actually kind of, it kind of twinkles. That's, that's Victoria's doing. Okay. So I was just like thinking about just how, how beautifully she's, she's had our house decorated this Christmas. But I mean, we put all these ornaments on that tree. 
man, that thing looks good. Almost like take your breath away. It's like the first thing that you see when you come in our house. And here's, but here's the, the reality. There's one big problem. That tree is dying. It looks great though, right? But it's dying. It was cut down. And there is no stopping that that tree is going to die. It doesn't matter how many beautiful ornaments you put on it. And I just want to tell you this. This is what the virgin birth proves. This is what Jesus' name as rescuer proves, is that it doesn't matter how many ornaments you put on your life, you're still hopelessly dying without Christ. And you cannot rescue yourself no matter how much you dress yourself up. And here's, what, here's what's being said right here, is that we can't climb up the ladder to God. God must climb down the ladder to us. How does He do it? Through a virgin birth. And I, I can't get into all this right now, but some will object and say, I want to interact with it a little bit. How can you believe in a virgin birth? I mean, this is like tooth fairy stuff, right? It's like the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. Well, how do, how do we... As, as, as Christians who hold to the historic professions of faith and message of the Bible, how do we believe in the virgin birth? It's very simple. We were just told, by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. What was the Holy Spirit doing in creation? You go back to the beginning, you see uh, in Genesis 1, you see that the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And what was he doing? He was creating life ex nihilo, out of nothing. He was bringing life where there was no life. And so it's really not that much of a stretch for us to say that if God did that in creation, God could do this with a virgin. If you settle on this, by the way, the rest of the gospel story just fits into place. I mean, Jesus walking on water, Jesus restoring sight and mobility. Jesus forgiving sin. Jesus rising from the grave. It all fits into place if you can settle on, I believe in the virgin birth. And you see, Jesus' name and the virgin birth prove something. And here's what it is. I want you to see this. The significance is just off the charts. It's that God is the great initiator of salvation. And, and here's, just think about it. Did anyone ask God to create the world? No. No, so he initiates creation, right? And here's a way to think about it. So let's say that you have a healthy marriage. You know, there's two people, and it's like, man, we're, we love each other. We have more love to give. We have more than we actually need. Let's have a baby. And let's share the good that we have with another person. So within the dance of the Trinity, there, there was this indivisible unity, inexhaustible wealth of resource. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit from the foundations of time said, we have so much that we want to give this away. And so the, the world was created to be shared with us. God initiates creation. Well, how about this? Did anybody ask God to write His Word down? Did you ask God to do that? No, He initiates in Revelation. This is God telling us who He is. Because left to ourselves, we're too selfish. We're too sinful. We would be spin doctors and we would create a God in our own image that would not be very helpful. And so what happens? Well, God initiates in Revelation so that it's not speculation. 
God has a name, and His name is Jesus, and Jesus has come to rescue. And that leads to uh, the other question. Did anybody ask God to save them, or to initiate salvation? No, so God initiates in salvation. What we needed was for someone to bridge the divide between God and man. We needed someone to represent humanity and divinity. We needed one, here's a way to think about it, we needed one who was both small enough and big enough. And here's what I mean by that. Matthew is telling us how that someone is Jesus. He was small enough to be born, yet big enough to speak the world into existence. He was small enough to cry when he was hungry, yet big enough to hear the cry of every human heart. He was small enough to need swaddling cloths, yet big enough to one day leave them in the grave. He was small enough to become one of us, yet big enough to rescue all of us. And how does all this happen? Well, Matthew tells us. It's through the incarnation, God, fully God, becoming fully man. And how did that happen? What was the vehicle whereby God would introduce the incarnation of Jesus, of His only Son, into the story? It was a virgin birth. One of the great Christmas texts that does not get out of Scripture, that doesn't get a lot of airtime, is something I want to show you right now as a cross-reference. And it's Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He, hum- he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So two things I want to show you right here. First of all, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Mild he lay his glory by. What does that mean? That means that I am going to release my right to function as, as, as a God without any limits. I'm, I'm going to uh, willingly and voluntarily do that. And so what does that mean? That means that he's relatable. He emptied himself so that he could relate to us. Did you know that Jesus knows what it's like to be a baby? Jesus knows what it's like to have a mother and a father. Jesus knows what it's like to have brothers. Jesus knows what it's like to be an adolescent. Jesus knows what it's like to be an awkward teenager. Jesus knows what it's like to be an adult who takes responsibility. Jesus knows what it's like to be poor. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to face death. But it doesn't stop with relatability. He emptied himself, but he also humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does this mean for us? It means not only that God initiates salvation, but that we need to be rescued. That God came on a great rescue mission. And so this is something that you know, we say a lot is that Jesus died because of us and Jesus died instead of us. And there's so much in that statement. I just want to explain it to you. Jesus died because of us. Did you know that the wages of sin is death? That when we resist God, when we reject His ways, we reject His word, we reject His His will, that we deserve capital punishment. And this leaves us in a predicament, right? Because if I'm guilty and I'm on death row, I can't save myself. 
So, but, so Jesus died because of you, but Jesus also, he, he died instead of you. And that's where the grace train of the gospel uh, takes off in your heart, is you understand that Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were guilty, while we were on death row, while there was a debt that we could not afford to pay in our own power, in our own resource, Christ died for us. And so Jesus died because of us. He died instead of us. And here's the question I want to ask you. Have you been rescued by Jesus? Have have you personally been rescued by Jesus? And, And you see... The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For as with your mouth that you confess and are saved, it's with your heart from the inside out, everything that you are, that you believe and are justified. So what would be the greatest miracle on Christmas? It would not be you getting everything on your Amazon wish list. It would be you being rescued from the the debt of death by Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray that if you've not transferred trust to Jesus fully and finally, that you would do it this Christmas. Let's keep going and see how the story progresses. Take a look at verse 22. All this, the virgin birth, the angel appearing, Mary and Joseph, Christmas. It took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that's Isaiah, 700 years prior, Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here we come to the second name of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And here's what I want to show you right here. The name Emmanuel means God will meet our need for relationship. The name Emmanuel means God will meet our need for relationship. Here's what makes Jesus better than first responders. After he rescues you, he gives you all of his resource and he never leaves you. Like, I mean, it's great that we, I mean, praise God that we have people who are trained to come to the scene of, a, of, a, of an accident where there's trauma, where there's trouble and, and to rescue people. Like that saves a lot of lives. But could you imagine the rescue team saying, no, now what we want to do is we, we want to be family <laughs> and, and, and we want to walk with you. We want to talk with you. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't just rescue, He gives us relationship. And just like Jesus' name confronts the lie that we can rescue ourselves, Emmanuel confronts a great lie as well. And here's what it is, that God is distant. That God is disinterested in us. That He wants nothing to do with us. And that's a lie. Because it doesn't matter how far you've run, how much you've sinned, you could never outrun and you could never outsin the amazing grace of God in Christ of Emmanuel God with us and you know anybody who thinks that who think man you don't know what I've done man if I if I step into church that place is going to catch on fire no 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 that's you're missing it it's not about what you do for God it's about what God did for you it's not about who you are for God. It's about who God is for you. And so when you believe, man, God would never accept me. God would never want me. God would never welcome me. It's a lie. Because of Emmanuel, God with us. 
God wants to be with you and He wants for you to be with Him. In fact, it's the main message of the Bible. It's that God is with us. That man can have a relationship with God. I mean, think about it. How does the Bible start? How does it end? And what all happens in between? Well, let's just index this, shall we? The Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God. That's one of the most powerful verses for you to live your life by. Everything in my life starts with God. Everything in my life revolves around God. And when it does, good things happen. It's not going to be easy, it's going to be worth it. And so here's what happens. God creates, and He walks in a perfect, peaceful relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but then they decided that they knew better than God when they really didn't. And then sin struck the world and the relationship was severed. What do you think? What, ha- what happens when somebody wrongs you? What happens when somebody does something that you would interpret as unforgivable, as irreconcilable? Are you going to go after them? Some, of, some people have done this. You've done this to some people. I'll tell you what God does. He still initiates relationships. And let me show this to you. He did it with Abraham when he was out worshiping idols in Ur. He says, no! I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham, and I'm going to work through you to spread my presence to all people in all places. He did it with Moses when he was moping around in his father-in-law's basement in a burning bush. He said, you're going to speak to Pharaoh. I've got a bigger plan, and you can't mess it up. He did it with Israel while they grumbled in the wilderness. He gave them priests to provide atonement through a sacrificial system. He gave them a tabernacle where God would tabernacle and give His presence to His people. He did it with David, who was a lowly shepherd boy. He says, no, you're going to slay Goliath. You're going to raise a son. His name is going to be Solomon, and I'm going to put it in your heart to equip him to build a temple, a dwelling place where I can be with my people. He did it with the prophets who constantly called people to repent and return to a right relationship with God. But then something, something happened 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, passed by, and it seemed like God had forgotten His people. It seemed like God has broken His promises. There was no word from God. And then, into the night, a baby is born. And Christmas happens. And Jesus shows up, and He's born as a child in relationship with a mother and an adopted father. Then Jesus grows up. And he calls 12 disciples to walk in relationship with him. Meaning to be in his presence, to converse, to learn, to grow. And how does Matthew's gospel end, by the way? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Let's do something really important together. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do everything that I've commanded you. And surely, here it is. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the gospel starts God with us and it ends God within us. And then He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. It becomes even more personal. God will never leave us nor forsake us. And then the Bible closes with a great wedding feast signaling an eternal relationship with God and the new creation. said it earlier. I'll say it again. Familiarity breeds passivity, doesn't it? I fear that we've grown way too accustomed to Emmanuel to God with us. 
As Tim Keller puts it, the idea of a manual does not stun us as much as it should. For example, consider the Old Testament. Anytime anyone drew near to God, it was terrifying. God appears to Abraham in a smoking furnace, to Israel in a pillar of fire, to Job as a hurricane, as a tornado. What do we do when a hurricane hits the Grand Strand? We shelter in place. Like that's how that's how unapproachable God is in his holiness. When Moses asked to see the face of God, he was told it would kill him. He could only see him as it passed by. When Moses came down off the mountain, his face was, was bright with radiance. So people couldn't even look at the guy. So great and unapproachable is God. And I just want to invite you to imagine if Moses were to hear the message of Christmas. If Moses were to read Matthew 1, he would cry out. This is the very thing I was denied. This means you can be in God's presence and not be consumed. And what is greatness, by the way? Well, I think that greatness is staked in willingness to relate to people who can do nothing for you. God with us. Think about the dad who's stronger than his kids, who probably is really busy, has a lot of stuff going on, but what does he do? He, he still he gets down in the floor with his kids and he subdues his own power and he starts to just like wrestle with them and start to play with them on their level to, to match their strength, to do something that makes sense to them. God with us. Behold the incarnation. And when God showed up that first Christmas, He was not in a pillar of fire or a tornado. He was a baby. And babies babies are special, right? They're unlike anything. I mean, they can't run from you. <laughs> they try, maybe. They can be picked up. They can be cuddled. They can be hugged. They can be kissed. And they like it. I mean, you do that with anybody other than your spouse, you're going to be in trouble. There's babies, man. They like it. They cling to you. Why, though? Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. Because this time, the bringer of judgment came to bear judgment. God in Christ, the baby born in the manger, came to end sin without ending sinners. He came to remove the barrier between humanity and God so we can be together, God with us. And every Christmas, millions of people, we sang it earlier, sing this, Jesus, our Emmanuel. But I wonder how many of us could really say that Jesus is with us. That we welcome Him. That we want Him. And here's a way that I've heard one pastor talk about it this way. was it's Some people, they're with Jesus the way you're with another person at a concert across the hall. It's like, yeah, I mean, we're with each other. We're like in the same room, but there's no meaningful interaction. You're not close. And I just want to ask you, are you content with concert Jesus this Christmas? Or do you actually want to be close with Him? And, and let me take that a step further. What are you willing to do? What will you do to be with, to respond to Emmanuel by being with him as well. You see, here, there's a difference, loved ones, between 
owning a Bible and treasuring the Bible. There's a difference between saying your prayers and having a prayer life. There's a difference between being filled with the Spirit of Christmas and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just curious, what what are you willing to to do? God would stop at nothing to be with you. What is stopping you from being with Him? Take a look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what happened to Joseph? Well, he personally responded when God's word was revealed to him uh, in Jesus. When Jesus was revealed to him through God's word. And in Luke's parallel account, we see that Mary's response to all this was, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And here's what I want to tell you. The simple truth is we don't work for God's presence. We don't initiate God's presence. We welcome it. We welcome the endless access that we have purchased by Jesus and powered in the Holy Spirit. We, we, we access it. It's, it's there, if you will. We don't work for it. We welcome it. We do the same thing that Mary and Joseph did. We say, I, man, I don't understand everything. I know this doesn't make my life easier, but I welcome Jesus as my rescuer and to be with me. I welcome Jesus. I welcome Emmanuel. And there was a, a picture that I saw about this, about this time last year. And um, it's a picture of Mary comforting Eve, and I think that it just so powerfully captures Christmas. And I want to invite you to take in the details of, of this picture for a moment. First of all, look at the feet. Do, do you see how the, the feet of Mary's offspring, Jesus, are, are crushing the serpent that enslaved Eve? You see, so there's victory. But then look at the look at the fruit. As, as Eve is clutching the, the fruit that, that led her to deny Christ, Mary is gently redirecting her other hand to be reunited with Christ. And then look at um look at Eve's face. Do you see the look of shame and disgrace? And so what is Mary doing? She's gently redirecting her focus to the rescuer who would turn her disgrace into grace. And I just, I just want to ask you, this Christmas, will you see Jesus as your ultimate rescuer? Will you see Jesus as Emmanuel who came to save you, to be with you, and He's with you to save you? How is all this possible? Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me pray for us.